Good morning. This is Jean Abshire with the International Power Hour. I'm here with my colleague and co-host, Cliff Staten, and we'd like to welcome you. We're going to talk this morning, um, do one of our international news forum episodes and talk about all the many major stories going on in the news. As has been in recent year or so, every week it's just full of... Uh, Events that uh, uh, need to be discussed it's, and need to be talked about. It's hard to so, keep up. Uh, I thought we might go ahead and talk a little bit about events in the Gaza Strip. Yes. Uh, over the past couple weeks, actually. About a month. Um, yeah. And perhaps maybe, Jean, you could tell us, maybe just give give our listeners a, a bit of background on the Gaza Strip. And So Gaza is a, is a very, very small territory. It's about 140 square miles is all. Um, and it is... Um, on the essentially the southwest side of Israel, up against the Mediterranean Sea, bordering <clears throat> excuse me, bordering Egypt, um, and it is uh, Palestinian territory. And it's um, about 1.5 million people. That's it a is lot the of most people. Densely populated piece of land on the face of the earth. Because at one point it's seven miles wide it's or something like that. It's very small. Yes. yes. Um, and it, it uh, with the West Bank, are what people typically refer to as pa- the Palestinian territories and what um, presumably in the future at some point could become a Palestinian state. And yes, under the Oslo Accords, it became under the PNA, Palestinian National Authority, in terms of governing it, yes. Yes, although that um, that is no longer so much the case. Um, it is now and has been for some time um, governed by a group called Hamas, which is both a political organization and a terrorist organization that does not recognize the existence of the state of Israel. And so off and on over the years, you've had this this uh, attempt to agree between uh, the PNA. Uh, with Palestinian by, National Authority. Yes, Palestinian National Authority with uh, the leadership group Fatah, which was Yasser Arafat's major group. Which uh, governs the West Bank. In terms of trying to come to some agreement with the folks, with the Hamas group, yes. Right. Um, and it's important to know that um, Gaza is... Um, Blockaded. Uh, it is fenced in on the Israeli and Egyptian borders, and uh, Israel also uh, controls sea access. Some refer to it actually as an open air prison because people cannot come and go freely in any direction. Um, you know, in and out is basically, to the, to the greatest extent, controlled completely by the Israeli military. Which makes it somewhat almost dependent upon um, aid. Born aid. Yes. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, they, there is tax revenue um, yes. that, you know, I mean, everybody <clears throat> pays taxes. Uh, but that actually also is controlled by Israel. Um, the Israeli government collects and disperses the taxes. And if things aren't necessarily going quite as they like, the tax disbursements may not be carried out promptly. Um, but foreign aid is a very, very big deal um, in Gaza. And um, foreign aid has actually been declining, which is one of the contributing things to the extremely severe economic crisis that exists in Gaza. Much of the foreign aid coming from the United Nations refugees for uh, relief for Palestinians. Yes. And uh, in January, uh, under the, our new budget, um, President Trump uh, significantly cut funding for the U.S. funding for that particular fund. Uh, I think initially he stated $65 million would be cut, but now we find out it's actually more along the lines of about $300 million cut, which is significant because yes. other countries had to step in and make up the difference. Right. And when you're talking about, you know, demands on refugee aid, there's a lot of refugee problems right now that also, you know, pull away funds from from what could be spent in for for Palestinian refugees, the Syrian refugees, the uh, Rohingya refugees. I mean, there's there are huge refugee crises right now, and and you know the pot of refugee money is declining, and without in the, in the time of ever more demand. Um, and and the situation in Gaza is great. The the unemployment the overall unemployment rate is nearly fifty percent, and uh, youth unemployment um, people between the ages of twenty and twenty four sixty eight percent. All of that leads to very volatile mixture when you get. That type of unemployment yes. and so on. 
I mean, it, it compromises everything. Not only do people not have incomes, obviously, if you're unemployed, um, but that also limits tax revenue. And so it becomes kind of a, a vicious spiral. A vicious cycle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what they're, they're having, one of the big issues that they're, they're actually having is um, people are so desperate for revenue that they will, like, take out credit on things and then right, left, and center just default on that. And it has... Uh, just a spiraling effect. They, uh, I saw an article where they interviewed a financial judge who who deals with you know people unable to pay their debt, and uh, I mean default rates are massive. And he's signing um, twenty arrest warrants a day, debtor's prison, uh, essentially, um, for people. Which I mean that's a that is a that's an intense level of of financial distress. So uh, the Israelis actually occupied Gaza post-67 until, right. um, I forget the exact year, 2006. Mm-hmm. They, they, with, they And had settlements there. With, yes. Uh, and the closed borders are primarily due to the threat of Hamas. Absolutely. Israel's, uh, to, to Israel. Israel has very, very legitimate security concerns coming out of Gaza. For years, they have um, fired rockets um, toward Israel. And for a long, long time, the rockets were very unsophisticated. And, I mean, if they hit anything, it was just basically sheer luck. Um, but uh, Hamas is supported by Iran, and the Iranians have managed to provide um, higher-tech, uh, more sophisticated weapons, weapons rockets, mm-hmm. uh, to Hamas, which are are actually smuggled in through uh, tunnel networks that um, typically coming in through Egypt, although the Egyptians and the Israelis actually work together to try to uh, kind of off and on combat. Apparently these tunnels tunnels are quite sophisticated and quite large, some of them big enough to drive a semi through. Yeah, they Um, bring in cars. That's a lot of digging. That's a lot of digging. (laughs) Also underscoring, I think, the level of desperation there. Yes, absolutely. I mean, people are bringing in products for the economy that they can't get because of the blockade, including food, building materials, you know, to build homes and businesses. I mean, infrastructure, very, very fundamental things and cars and stuff. (laughs) Yes. So recently we've had uh, there were a series of demonstrations, large demonstrations along the border. Intended Um, initially as um, peaceful demonstrations um, and then essentially sort of co-opted by Hamas, and things took a little turn. And the purpose of this, the stated purpose, was, again, to kind of illustrate one of the uh, fundamental, I guess, discussion points between Israel and Palestine, and this is this this notion of of right of return. What is is that, Jean? So under international law, uh, refugees have a right to return to their homes. And that's tricky when you have a, a country like Israel that the UN created that is put on top of people's land, essentially. Yes, and this has been this has been a consistent talking point for the Palestinians in dealing with trying to reach some type of agreement with with Israel in terms of a possible future state. Is yes, this question of right of return, and literally thousands of Palestinians lost their property. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, on the on the creation of the state of Israel in 1948, so we actually have the, the 70th anniversary yes. right mm-hmm. about now, um, uh, an estimated 700,000 Palestinians were dispossessed of their land and had to flee. They refer to that as the Nakba or, or the catastrophe. Mm-hmm. And we are coming up um, on March 15th, I believe, on, on the 70th anniversary of that, um, which is also part of the context for this march uh march of return as they as they've called it they were going to have um these initially peaceful demonstrations every friday from about a month ago until um uh, may 15th 
And so the Israelis are very sensitive to this, obviously. And um, so what happened? Um, Well, as I said, Hamas sort of took over what um, was initially intended as peaceful demonstrations and started um, kind of pushing pushing the envelope. Um, It was initially planned that it would be sort of a family thing. People would camp out um, some distance from the fence. But, um, excuse me, some uh, protesters got closer to the fence. The Israelis um, are committed for security reasons to defend that fence at all costs. Um, and so they opened fire. And um, these these protesters, um, I mean, they, they are largely unarmed. And there's been a lot of contra- controversy about the Israeli military using live ammunition on essentially unarmed protesters. Yes, and the Israelis insist that they were able to, that most were killed were actually members of Hamas. Uh, And, of course, uh, from the uh, folks on the ground uh, that were recipients of the fire, they argue that that just simply is not correct. That. yeah, some of the most controversial incidents have been um, a journalist was killed. Uh, last week, a 15-year-old boy was killed. Those are being investigated um, by the Israeli military, those instances. But, um, you know, that these things are very, very controversial. And this, it seems to me, when I look at this, it has the potential to... to um get worse. Absolutely. Um, I mean, when you have the levels of frustration linked to, you know, the, the level of economic distress that we just talked about, um, it is a, a worrying thing. And actually, um, various folks, including uh, the Israeli military, um, have said that that Gaza could essentially blow up that figuratively, of course, that, um, you know, this, the, the situation is so tense, partly again, related to the economic problems that it, it creates a security threat. And of and, course, you know, Hamas has always kind of taken advantage of those things in terms yes. of, uh, yes. they are opportunistic, it, it's very opportunistic, yes. um, hiding weapons near schools yep. and things like that, which, uh, uh, doesn't make uh, Israeli defense any easier because no. of that, because they often will get the blame when civilians civilians are killed, and uh, and in many ways Hamas kind of sets that up. Yes, so. um, th- this has been a significant thing, though. They started out with about thirty thousand um, demonstrators there. Um, as the the weeks have passed and the violence has has. Um, you know, started and then continued. Uh, I think last week they were down to about 3,000 participants. Um, but that's still a goodly number of people willing to show up and, you know, in a context where they could be shot. Yes. So I guess it, it's obviously going to be worth watching uh, in terms of, of yeah. how much longer the, the, the protests continue. Scheduled for another uh, couple of weeks. What do the um, Israelis do? Do they back off in terms of their more recent policy of firing into the into this group yeah um yeah i mean the again they said that they would protect the fence pretty much at all costs um but also one of the strategies um that hamas is, has been using is to um try to fly burning kites over the fence to try to light on fire um farmland israeli farmland surrounding the fence or on the mm-hmm. other side of the fence um which you know, Israel obviously sees it as, a, as an aggressive act. Sure, yeah. sure. Well, kind of related to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, actually related to that. One of the issues, again, dealing between um, Israel and Palestine, the negotiations always has to deal with the status of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. President Trump has significantly changed American policy in the region by um, moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Announcing the intent. Announcing the intent, too. Hasn't quite happened Uh, But clearly he has, um, while we have always, I don't care which president you talk about, we've been very pro-Israeli. Absolutely. Uh, Unwaveringly. This this president is much more, is even more vocal in terms of his support for, for the state of Israel and its activities. Yes. And, I mean, on the Jerusalem issue, for as a, you know, poster child sort of example um other presidential candidates you know of both parties have talked about moving uh the u.s embassy from from tel aviv to jerusalem and then you know when they're elected they don't do it because 
the international community pretty much agrees that that is a is a provocative act um, because it shows explicit bias. And again, there's never been any question that U.S. support for Israel is unwavering. But um, there is such thing as kind of, in a sense, playing the game enough, looking just impartial enough that maybe you can, you know, help broker peace, for example, and um, moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem is a huge provocation. And for the Palestinians, Palestinians see that as, as um, another, just another example of why the United States can't be a, a, a quote, a, honest, a years honest or yeah. objective broker here. Yeah. But it's interesting to kind of follow up on that. Um, you know, each year the United States, uh, the State Department issues a human rights report. Right. And that's for basically every country or sometimes they talk about regions mm-hmm. of the world. And this is often used for to determine who's eligible for foreign aid and things mm-hmm. like that. And typically uh, in the section it will talk about Israel and the occupied territories. That's right. Well... This year, referring again, to the West Bank and Gaza. Yes, West Bank, Gaza, and uh, Golan, Golan Heights. Heights. Yes. Yes. So this year, again, you see the the not so subtle sh- shift by President Trump. Right. In that it's Israel. It's and I, and I actually Lists looked up right looked out. up the report that mm-hmm. section of the report. It's Israel, Gaza, West Bank, and Golan Heights. In other yep. words, it's been. The occupied, term occupied territories has been eliminated completely. Which is controversial, especially in the context of this flare-up of violence between Gaza and Israel. Yes, and also given the fact that the, uh, that the United States has long said that the occupation is illegal uh, yes. under both Democratic and Republican presidents here. So, again, this, this, um, it, it's interesting to watch to mm-hmm. see how this policy will play out in terms of future negotiations in terms of Israel-Palestine, yeah. where that is going. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, it makes our position um, more difficult. At least that's that's my opinion on, on that matter. Yeah, there were actually quite a few controversies uh, surrounding this human rights report. Um, for example, uh, the section on Saudi Arabia um, pared down the language uh, of the effects of the Saudi uh, bombing campaign in Yemen. Um, And in fact, uh, Amnesty International, they really ticked off Amnesty International, which is a non-governmental international organization that advocates for human rights. Um, Amnesty said that uh, the the report um, basically really sugarcoated uh, the what was going on. Um, um, I'm quoting here. Uh, the report said some coalition airstrikes caused disproportionate collateral damage, and it was ref- and that was what the uh, State Department report said that Amnesty had said. Um, whereas Amnesty's actual reporting said that the Saudi bombing campaign con- um, constituted serious violations that could amount to, to war crimes. There's a big gap between this could be war crimes and oh maybe there's some disproportionate collateral damage. That's a that's a absolutely yeah. And yeah. even in the section dealing with. Israel and what used to, what we used to call the occupied territories mm-hmm. now, most of the data is coming from the state of Israel, yeah. which means uh, more than likely Israeli violations are going to be understated in that respect. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, whereas in the past they've relied upon Palestinian sources also for, for the data as well. So, yeah. um, The report also... Um, drew some controversy um, as it changed the wording. Um, Well, previous reports um, since 2012 have referred to reproductive rights as as part of human rights. Um, And uh, this year, they got rid of anything referring to abortions, which is less surprising since that is hugely controversial, uh, but also contraception. And that's not so controversial in our society. Um, it, the report fo- focused um, exclusively on forced abortion and involuntary involuntary sterilization, um, as in coercion and population control. Um, but uh, you know, to remove that other wording is is a thing. And um, as, uh, 
spokesman for the from the bureaucracy of I'm sorry the Bureau of uh, Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor did acknowledge that it was a significant policy change. And then you can see this evident even in uh, among our our national bureaucracies, health education, yeah. uh, changes in language, and this clearly yeah. signals. Uh, the president's policies. Yeah, human rights are, are much less of a uh, priority, it seems, under under the current administration. I think we'll go ahead and take a break here. So the International Power Hour will be right back. growing up. You can help end childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Cat Show. Up next, we have Nico. Nico is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right. A group known especially for their sunspot sleeping, ball chasing, leg rubbing, and of course, companionship. Just look how she struts. It's like she owns the place. And see how she curls up and cuddles her person. The pitch on her purring is simply perfect. Nice one. Fantastic cat. But really the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Nico is to meet one. Visit the shelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the dog show. Up next we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch snuggling, ball chasing, face licking, and of course companionship. Now let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive, and now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance will come in with this group. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit the shelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire, Professor of Political Science and International Studies here at IU Southeast. I'm here with my co-host, Cliff Staten, also Professor of International Studies and Political Science. Um, we have been talking about major news events, and Nicaragua has really popped up in the news in the last week. Why don't you tell us about what's going on with that, Cliff? Well, uh, it's interesting. Uh, those of us that watch politics in Nicaragua, those small group of us <laughs> in the country that pay attention, it has been fascinating to watch. Uh, in, in the over the past week, uh, you've had um, demonstrations, riots, and shooting in the streets of Managua and some of the other 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 cities within within the country. Uh, and in terms of, you know, it was reported, you know. That uh, obvious, you may or may or not know, the president of Nicaragua is Daniel Ortega, mm -hmm. and uh, those of us that are old enough to remember, Ortega led the Sandinista was one of the leaders of the Sandinista Revolution that came to power in 1979, and there were some revolutionary years in 1980 during the 1980s. Um, uh, in which uh, there were attempts to change the economy and so on. Ultimately, in 1990, um, the Sandinistas and Daniel Ortega ran for president. He was defeated, mm -hmm. uh, much of that due to um, uh, uh, people were just tired of the Civil War, for and at least the best evidence seems to indicate yeah. that. But the interesting thing is, contrary to what people expected, the Sandinistas stepped down and became the loyal opposition. So since that time, uh, after Mrs. Why don't you tell us just a tiny bit about the Sandinistas? Okay. Uh, the Sandinistas uh, were... Why was, it, why, why was it surprising that they stepped down and became... Well, typically opposition? you don't think of uh, revolutionary groups ah. voluntarily <laughs> stepping out right. of power. And uh, this was a conscious decision that uh, the Sandinista leadership made. They were still the single largest party in the country, which they still are today. So they believed that they could still continue to meet their objectives through the political process. So they allowed 
the democratic process to play out. And the interesting thing, again, when we look at, you know, this is a country that had never really had democracy before. Mm -hmm. So 1990, Violeta Chamorro is elected. And then in 1996, a man named Arnoldo Aleman was elected. Aleman is from the political right in Nicaragua. And then Enrique Bolaños. And the Sandinistas are far left. Yes, yes. And Bolaños, Enrique Bolaños elected in 2001 from the far right. And then the election 2006, Daniel Ortega is elected again. So you see many people looking, saying, wow, a democratic culture is beginning to take place. You have peaceful transfers of power, the right and the left, and so on. And actually, so Ortega's back in power January of 2007. Since then, there's some warning signs beginning to appear. Uh, he was reelected in 2012 and in 2017. But between 2012 and 2017, he maneuvered to get... Uh, the Supreme Court uh, to rule that he could have unlimited terms. Mm -hmm. And, of course, in 2017 also his vice president is his wife, which upset many people. They see this as him trying to establish a dynasty yeah. here. And some people have even used the term Danielismo to explain what's going on. But essentially the, the, the thing that what kind of touched off these riots uh, – was that uh, they're having budget problems. Mm -hmm. So they decided to change the pension plan or Social Security plan. And in essence then, they basically said, okay, we're going to cut old age pensions by 5%. And 5% of that would go to help pay medical costs for old age Nicaraguans. And what we're also going to do, we're going to raise the Social Security tax from 6.25% to 7%. Well, this kind of took the business, because the business community has to pay for part of that as well. This took the business community by surprise. And, of course, old age pensioners, uh, Nicaragua, in recent years, the poverty level has has gotten better in terms of improvements, the gap between the rich and poor. But still, it's an extremely poor country. So 5% loss of your pension uh, can be a huge, a huge difference. So this yeah. kind of touched off. A peaceful demonstration that began last Wednesday in Managua. Uh, there were both pensioners and students, lecturers from the from the UCA, the university there, and what happened is that they were descended upon by, at least from one perspective, they were government thugs, groups uh, hired by. Uh, the Sandinistas to prevent this from occurring. So uh, not like part of the military or not anything? Not part of the military, police, no. Uh, okay. They had helmets and they had go uh, government T-shirts on. Mm -hmm. uh, so many believe that this was this was uh, uh, part of the Ortega government and, and hired thugs from some of the Sandinista labor unions. Others, though, would argue these were these were actually done by the business community. So, you know, and I, I still have uh, friends and contacts in Managua, and uh, they're kind of bewildered. I mean, they really don't know who to believe at this point in terms of who actually responded. But clearly, though, the military did step in to protect government buildings. People were shot and killed. And so you've got uh, uh, I don't know if there are riots going on today, but uh, up until yesterday, uh, demonstrations hitting tens of thousands. And this was this is um, this hasn't occurred since the revolutionary period of the 1980s. So it's interesting to watch uh, what's going on there. So I don't follow Nicaragua closely at all. I can't do all countries and I know you do. So I, I you know, leave that in, in, in your zone. But but this did capture my attention um, when it, when I heard about it in the news. So, I mean, there was there was economic tensions and discontent and some distrust. But, w I mean, in terms of, like, what? the demonstrations and the rioting, did that, was that as out of nowhere as, and as it, unexpected as I, it felt It was me? unexpected. Um, it took – what happened is that when, when they proposed this change to the pension plan, uh, they, they really didn't consult with the business community. Mm -hmm. In many ways, what happened is that when uh, – Daniel Ortega was reelected in 2000 or became uh, president in 2007. You now, here's a revolutionary leader on the left. And so he kind of he's become somewhat of a populist. He cut a deal with the business business community in in Nicaragua, which basically said 
we're, we're, we'll lay off you, make your profits, but don't get involved in politics. So it's kind mm-hmm. of this unholy alliance, so mm-hmm. to speak. That And many Sandinistas turned against Daniel Ortega because of this move, actually. Uh, and then he's also kind of made amends with the hierarchy in the, in the Catholic Church, uh, many of whom opposed the Sandinistas during the 70s and 80s. Many of yeah. the, the laity in the church actually supported the Sandinistas. So, so he, he, he's, and he tends to dominate the Sandinista party, opposition people in, within the party trying to get the nomination are typically shut out. So he's becomes, this is what uh, some people have labeled Danielismo. And, and in many ways he's become uh, what some people would call just another another Nicaraguan populist like like uh, the Samosas and so uh-huh. on. But he clearly has policies put in place that have helped the poor labor unions and, and in terms of reducing the gap between the rich and poor. But there's always this underlying dissension there. Poverty is still great there. It doesn't take much to to uh, bring problems. Uh, and uh, so I think that in many ways it was how this, this announcement was made, business community not being consulted, and they're having to face higher taxes to help pay for the, mm-hmm. the, the pensions and so on. And there's also this idea that when he maneuvered the court, he packed the Supreme Court basically, mm-hmm. to allow him to run again, people saw this as here's a dynasty being being set up. And also then, of course, when his, his um, Rosario Murillo, Murillo who is the, uh, um, his wife, is kind of set up to be to run for president the next time. And people are, are, this really is the rub, I think. And they see this as a return to somacismo, to uh, 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 trying to establish this dynasty. And uh, so this is the underlying underlying current that, that really is at the root of this opposition in Nicaragua. I mean, you know, when you when you have people thinking, oh, they've you know become more democratic. Look at these competitive elections, and we've had, as you said, um, orderly transitions of power and control of government has gone back and forth between different parties. And then you have, um, you know, sort of the setup of family taking over. That's that's not normal democratic politics to have it become a family business. No, it's not. And typically, if you look at Latin America uh, historically, Nicaragua included. Um, presidents were limited to terms, mm-hmm. and, and, and currently, although there's a trend to try to get around that now. So, and clearly, he used his his power over the judiciary. Uh, so, in other words, we may have tr- peaceful transitions of power at the presidential level. One of the signals we look for a democracy is the is the judiciary independent, and yeah. it's not independent in Nicaragua. It wasn't independent. Whoever's president tends to dominate the judicial branch here, and that's what's happened. And he was able to get the constitution reinterpreted to allow him to continue. And you have to remember, in Nicaragua, the presidency basically is a plurality vote. And the largest mm-hmm. single party still today is the are the Sandinistas. The opposition on the right is typically fragmented, or it has been since since uh, the Bolaños years, and so it's very difficult to defeat um, um, the Sandinistas because of that. Uh, and they also kind of. Uh, in 1999, they maneuvered with the liberals to actually uh, lower the uh, used to you had to get a 50 percent majority and there would mm-hmm. be runoffs for presidency. They basically made it a plurality, which which if you're the largest party, that's going to benefit you. you. I mean, you can win the presidency in Nicaragua with 37 percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. So, so something to watch. Absolutely something to watch. It's very exciting because, you know, over the years I was excited about Nicaragua making this transition from mm. essentially non-democracy, authoritarian to revolutionary years and then having the semblance of peaceful transitions of power. And, of course, then the warning signs, Ortega maintaining himself in power and uh, – changing the constitution to allow these are and, and the, the lack of judicial independence all of these warning signs saying well maybe all is not well maybe they're not on that track to to a more democratic political system lots of red flags thank you so 
Let's kind of move to a different part of the world. Uh, let's kind of uh, we've talked over the last semester a little bit about North Korea off and on. Yeah. Um, what's new about there? We are actually going to ha- actually meet with the North Koreans. Definitely looks like it since we've last uh, spoken about it. We have had we have heard some news. Um, uh, CIA Director uh, Mike Pompeo has apparently talked to uh, the North Korean leadership about uh, meetings, which is a big deal. This um, was a secret. A sec- yeah, uh, it's almost like Kissinger going to <laughs> going to China. Yes, yes. Um, but that's that's actually kind of I think reassuring. Um, most of us in international relations like to see some some clear and concrete preparation before um, a, a meeting between. Uh, the the heads two of, heads of yeah. state, sure. And so having having reassurances that there there are indeed for sure things going on there, um, and that that Trump and Kim Jong Un aren't just going to like out of nowhere with no preparation and, and laying the groundwork going to meet that that would be very irregular. Um, and it, it's been an interesting thing. We um, have seen North Korea kind of in the driver's seat actually in terms of of driving the headlines, driving the news. Um, you know. Moving things forward, uh, kind of beginning with the Olympics, which we have talked about in the past. So I don't want to I don't want to get into that too much. But they have continued. But clearly, there's this detente. Maybe I shouldn't use that word, but going on between North and South Korea. Yes, um, the South Koreans are pushing this process as well, and they um, th- their language seems to suggest, um, you know, more strongly than than a lot of analysts think that. Um, the North really could be ready to make a deal. And in fact, we've seen um, comments out of North Korea just within the last week that, um, you know, they are, uh, they don't need to do tests anymore. Um, They have used the word denuclearization. And that, of course, has gotten hopes up very high in some quarters. But there is a lot of skepticism really around the world. If you look at, um, you know, I looked at I've looked at Canadian news. I've looked at British news, other news, and everybody's like, "Yeah, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is." Well, and if you look at their past history, yes. 1994, 2005, yep. 2007, we had what we thought were agreements in again, place, and the North and again, Koreans and, again. and the North Koreans violated those, those agreements. Yes. So I think that skepticism is, 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 is should be in place. Absolutely. There. Um, I mean, my expectation is that nothing will come of this. I mean, there, you know, if if President Trump can pull it off, all the more power to him. But the the history, the long <laughs> the long history with with trying to negotiate with North Korea um, on the nuclear issue, and it's dating back to 1994. Um, is is it's just a it's a graveyard of failed attempts. Um, and I mean, you can, I mean, like North Korea in the last week has said, well, you know, we won't, we won't do any more nuclear tests. Well, you know, on one hand, maybe that sounds like a big give, but on the other hand, there are indications that their nuclear test site, um, which is the base of a mountain, they've tested enough. They've, they've had enough explosions there where the mountain is completely destabilized. They had a tunnel collapse last fall that probably killed 200 people. So they were going to move that from that place anyway. Yeah. I don't think that they, I mean, they'd just end up with a complete rubble pile and allowing radiation to escape potentially if they continued to use that much. So I think they're giving away something that they weren't going to do anyway. And that's not much of a give. Although again, on the front end, it can sort of sound like that, but you don't have to scratch very far beneath the surface to think that what, what they're putting on the table isn't much. Well, it'd be interesting from the American perspective, from our perspective, you know, I think, uh, I think we, you and I both would, would, would warn against very high expectations uh, because If those expectations, if we go in thinking uh, we're going to negotiate with them and they're going to reduce their nuclear weapons stockpile after one meeting, um, I don't think that's going to occur. No. Uh, This is going to be a long time process. Yes. well, so there's a couple of things too, um, a couple of additional things. Number one, um, you know, words matter, and it seems that that the U.S. and the North Koreans have very different understanding of what denuclearization means. Um, when the U.S. talks about it, we mean uh, the North Koreans giving up their nuclear program, um, allowing in inspectors has been a demand in the past. Um, Living up to the non-nuclear non-proliferation the treaty. treaty, exactly, which they were part of and then and then uh, walked away from. 
the North Koreans seem to understand denuclearization in a more global sense, a broader sense, that, um, for example, the U.S. will will take the Korean Peninsula, including South Korea, out of under um, <laughs> our quote-unquote nuclear umbrella, which is our, our you know, protection system for our allies, especially Japan and South Korea. Um, and, you know, the U.S. basically withdrawing protection from South Korea, like, that's not going to happen. In other words, they see this as uh, we denuclearize, you denuclearize yes. in one sense. And that's um, not going to happen. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at precedents as well, um, you know, I, I mean, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya in 2003 negotiated away a nuclear program um, with the hope of, of having better relations with the international community and um, benefit from, from that. And, you know, what happened in Muammar Gaddafi? Ultimately, he ended up with um, the West helping uh, uh, insurgents in his, or not insurgents, but um, anti-government activists in his country uh, overthrow his government, and he ended up with a bullet in the head. Yes. Um, in Ukraine, uh, between 1994 and 1996, the Ukraine agreed to deliver nuclear weapons left there by the Soviet Union um, to Russia with the understanding that um, they would be offered protection. And the international community has essentially sat by and said, oh, that's really unfortunate, as Russia has literally taken over their territory. So th the international community doesn't have a good track record in terms of um, making authoritarian dictatorships that are you know, using nuclear weapons and, and gain, trying to gain or gaining that technology as protection, there's, there's no reason for them to think. There just aren't really precedents to think that in the long term that will go well for them. Interesting also, I think, from the North Korean perspective, um, the idea that they're actually going to sit down at a table with the United with the president That's of the United States. That's a huge status States. That is a huge symbolic uh, win for the North uh, Koreans. It There's no doubt about that. It legitimizes them. It's symbolically um, huge, yes. Which is, in many ways, is what they've really wanted. They've yes. wanted respect by the international community, re uh, recognition mm -hmm. by the community, and they've used nuclear power is kind yep. of the vehicle to, to attempt to achieve that. Uh, What's interesting, uh, uh, I think also from the, if you look at the Chinese perspective, now China, I think, mm. behind the scenes has kind of played a big role in getting them to the table as well. But uh, if I'm, China, China's always seen North Korea as something that's kind of the, the buffer between right. them and the West. And to me, their worst nightmare would be the U.S. agrees to recognize North Korea. Not that this may happen under President Trump, but if we would recognize them, bring them into the nuclear nonproliferation, start trading them, treat them as a normal country, I think that this would be the worst nightmare from China's perspective. So it's interesting to see, and they're going to be on the outside of this. This, mm -hmm. this they're not going to be at the table here. So right. it's interesting. To look at it from different perspectives here. It is, yeah. Um, I, I think it's pretty clear that China um, sees itself as benefiting from the status quo. Um, I don't think they want the North Koreans going too wild, um, you know, as long as, the, you know, they can kind of walk a line and it's fine, but they, they don't want them getting too far out there. Um, the, the Chinese did participate in sanctions in response to um, North Korea's nuclear test, and it hit them. Um, there was a 16.7 drop in Chinese imports from North Korea in the first three quarters of 2017. And North Korea has really limited trading opportunities. So having, you know, that big a drop in, you know, what it's sending to China, that's a that's a huge hit for their economy. And that's probably what is motivating Kim Jong-un in, in large part to, yes. you know, mm -hmm. come to the table. Although, again, the fact that he can gain the status and the, you know, just the prominence from bringing a U.S. president to the table, in a sense, that's a, that is a huge symbolic thing. But so, the Chinese angle is one to watch, yeah. So to kind of move on, uh, the president of France is visiting President Trump in the United States. Exactly. So um, why is he here? Well. <laughs> Besides the state dinner that, he, that they had last night. Which, Look, the menu looked delicious. <laughs> Um, so that's an interesting thing. Um, the Europeans uh, have have struggled to figure out 
what to do with President Trump, in a sense. Sure. Um, Angela Merkel from Germany uh, has has really been a prominent figure in leading the European Union. And um, there was clearly no love lost between her and Trump when he refused to shake her hand when she first came and visited. Um, our traditional allies, the British, um, Theresa May, the prime minister, also doesn't seem to have uh, synced well with Trump. But France's Emmanuel Macron is seems to be the one who can who, who can talk to Trump the best in terms of of the Europeans. So he's here to talk to Trump. Um, it, you know, it gets him some cachet, too. Uh, but he is coming with um, with an agenda that, um, again, I think he's kind of acting as a in a sense, as a spokesperson for for the EU, for the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the big ones is, I mean, he's got a li- he's got a little bit of a laundry list, and and a lot of these are, you know, a- or as a group, it's a- it's probably a big enough ask that you know, adding curing cancer and you know, sending people to Mars would be, you know, would fit in with this. It's just it's too big to get all of it, but. One of the one of the big ones is um, to try to stop Trump from pulling out of the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, that is, Trump has a decision to make within the next few weeks. Yes, every ninety days he is supposed to um, um, certify that Iran is in compliance with with the deal and for it to continue. Yes. yes, and the international community agrees that Iran is actually in compliance. I don't think anybody really seriously questions that. Well, there uh, have been – the International Atomic Energy Agency has issued eight reports. Uh, yes. They're the ones that have access to the facilities that inspect them, and all eight reports clearly state that uh, – um, that Iran is in is in compliance. Um, right. The Trump administration, President Trump, has argued that uh, when, uh, you, they, that they violated the spirit of the agreement in terms of uh, testing of ballistic missiles. But the agreement wasn't about delivery systems; right. it was about nu- uh, nuclear materials and development of, nu- of nuclear weapons. So, right. um, and it may violate the spirit of it, but technically, it does not. So. Uh, he has threatened to pull out. Absolutely. And that was a huge campaign thing for him. Yes, absolutely. Tear and it's interestingly the, enough, the, uh, the um, um, Javad Zarif, who's the Iranian foreign minister, has said if the United States pulls out, he believes the deal is null and, and not valid. And yeah. thus... Iran is no longer subject to um, subject to to the restrictions placed upon it. He was giving uh, interviews to U.S. media outlets yes. uh, oh, yesterday yes. or the day before, <laughs> stating that. Which um, you know, some of that is communicating to us. Some of that is probably also communicating to Macron and other Europeans yes. that boy, they need to they need to bring Trump along. A, on lot, this. a lot of pressure on that. Yes. Yeah, I think. Um, Americans need to realize that that the Iranian nuclear deal, um, you know, with its strengths and weaknesses, of which there are both, um, was an international agreement. This was not a U.S.-Iran thing. This yes, was China, France, Germany, Russia, U.K., and the United States. Right. It was with, and Iran, six, of course. six plus Iran, essentially, yes. even though it's sometimes known as the P5 plus one. It's really the P6. Yeah, that's <laughs> we'll right. get into that. That's confusing to a lot of people. Um, and also but, people yes. don't realize this, this agreement took about eight years. It actually started Long under the latter, la, last part of the Bush administration right. and continued through the Obama administration. Exactly. Um, and so this has been, I mean, Macron is essentially tasked with trying to get Trump to stick with it. And there was uh, there were some comments uh, yesterday evening that, um, you know, that that they had points that they could talk about. And indeed, uh, U.S. negotiators have been talking with um, Europeans about trying to add uh, I mean, essentially come up with a new agreement, an additional agreement, which is not uncommon. You, you typically begin with one and then and then build from there. You don't and try actually, to put everything in one agreement. That was the hope of the original treaty. Yes. Is, is you, you use this as a building block to negotiate other agreements that would, over the years – when the treaty is no longer in effect, it moderates uh, the government in Iran as it becomes yes. more enmeshed in the global economy and exactly. global global uh, political system. Yeah. Senior uh, French, German, and British officials have been talking with, with State Department folks and we have been negotiating, you know, trying to get some common ground that they can essentially then take to Iran for further agreement. Um, so far, you know, they haven't 
settled on anything, but you know, there might be some progress here and that might potentially be enough, but it, uh, who knows? It'll and probably <laughs> on the table also is the issue of U.S. tariffs uh, yes. in terms of uh, European goods coming into this country. That's that is clearly going to be discussed. Definitely on Macron's agenda. Um, yeah, the Europeans are still very, very unhappy at um, the threat of, of Trump steel and aluminum tariffs. Um, there was a little bit of a of a um, delay on those being um, put in place, but the Europeans have have longer term concerns about that, and so that is another item on the on the Macron to do list is to is to get a get Trump to back off on that. And then, um, of course, possibly even uh, I don't I'm not sure how much we discussed the climate accord agreement, of which President Trump pulled out of, which was really. Pushed. I mean, this this agreement was was really a French agreement. They yes, it is known as the accord. Paris Agreement. That's right. <laughs> the Paris Climate Accord. Um, yes, and uh, I mean Macron is clearly unhappy about that. Um, Trump said, you know, explicitly, you know, it's a, I'm quoting, um, I was elected to represent the citizens of Pittsburgh, not Paris. Um, that's what he said when he when he pulled out, and Macron. Um, put a video on Twitter and said, make our planet great again, you know, a direct response, you know, playing on the, on the Trump campaign slogan. (laughs) Um, and, and so it's definitely an issue. Although, um, I think that the Iranian nuclear issue, um, and and actually this, uh, keeping the U S engaged in the Syrian conflict as well, are bigger issues for France. And so you and I have spoken before about the fact that in many ways we've been marginalized in that, in that discussion. Yes. Um, but but the but the Europeans don't want us to just completely pull out and leave um, Syria, which Trump has talked about doing. So I think that's probably a little bit of a higher um, higher priority thing than the Paris Climate Accord. But but as, as maybe a little subtle act, um, uh, Macron did bring an oak tree sapling um, to be and, and and presented it to Trump um, for. Uh, planting in the White House garden, which apparently has been done. Um, And, you know, it's sort of thought that this, you know, here's a tree. (laughs) Rather symbolic there, yes. (laughs) So it was was actually um, a... a sapling from a, a battle site, so they're um, from World War One. So there's, you know, there's there's a little extra thing in there. But yeah, here's a tree. It's green. <laughs> I think that was you know subtle, but there. Um, and then also um, Macron has been um, outspoken uh, on about advocating for um, for democracy in Europe and. Um, and, and the liberal international order. Um, yes. He he spoke to the European Parliament. Uh, the response uh, to the issues faced in the world should not be authoritarian democracy, but the, th- the authority of democracy. Um, and so, advocating for um, you know opposing strong arm dictators and stuff like that is also w- one of his things. So he's he's got a lot of talking to do. We'll be talking to Congress today might be going on right now <laughs> watching the news over your shoulder uh but yes it's interesting to see the europeans trying to send in their guy and try to figure something out so we've had a busy week uh one. so um and we'll see you all next week yeah? yes next week we'll be talking about um actually uh cyber warfare and I think that'll be an interesting thing. That's also been in the news a lot. We're going to... The warfare of the future. The warfare, or the warfare exactly. of now. The warfare of now. And and the future. And so, the future, yes. Um, I'd like to thank everybody for listening to the International Power Hour. Um, if you want to hear us again, you can listen on Saturday or you can download this or other uh, prior episodes on iTunes or Stitcher or um, listen to it from our website. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>